Our Old Testament reading today comes from um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Um. Thank you, Stacy. Well, good morning. I'm Jordan Dayub. I'm the pastor here at Highlands Church. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're happy to have you and those who are watching online on this beautiful Lord's Day. It's now time for us to get into the Word of God. And we're about three sermons into a series we've just started in 1 Peter, which we've entitled Resident Aliens, the Church in Exile. Because, as most of you have hopefully noticed by now, we are living in strange times. And the gospel um, estranges us from the culture and estranges the culture from us, even if we're from this culture. Many of you are born and raised right here um, in St. Louis or just here in America, but uh, the nation you've grown up in is looking a bit weird lately. Well, this is not the first time that Christians have found themselves uh, estranged by the culture, because that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? It makes God's people and God's church a called out group. We are a contrast community, which means that we are part of the culture, and at the same time, we are distinct from the culture. And so the world looks at us and says they look like me and talk like me, but they're different. And so 1 Peter is a powerful message to us right now at this moment we're living in, in the 21st century. Um, we're in our third sermon, and our text is 1 Peter 10 through 13. So let's read. This is the word of God. Concerning this salvation, the prophet's who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they, the prophets, that is, were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, now we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage. Teach us what you would have us to learn that we might be transformed by it, convinced and convicted by its truth. 
that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible is a book of prophecies. Now, prophecy is not something we kind of talk about much these days. Now, some groups talk a whole lot about prophecy all the time, and they're always setting dates and then having to explain why the date they set was wrong. We know better. We don't do that. Uh, But maybe we don't talk about prophecy enough, because the Bible is a book of prophecies. Uh, We don't have modern-day prophecies, prophets like in the Bible times, but there are people in our culture who have had, well, what we would call a prophetic voice. I think of someone like Francis Schaeffer, who anticipated back in the late 60s exactly what's happening in our culture right now. And if you haven't read any Francis Schaeffer, I highly recommend him. But according to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy... There are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament and 578 prophecies in the New Testament for a total of 1,817 for you numbers people out there. And these prophecies are contained in 8,352 of the Bible's verses. And since there are 31,124 verses in the entire Bible, this means that about a quarter of the Bible... 26.8% to be exact, is dedicated to the prophetic. Now, many of these prophecies have been fulfilled. Some haven't, but many of them have been fulfilled because they concern the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His birth, his earthly ministry, his suffering. And what's clear to us now looking back on fulfilled prophecy, was not so clear to the prophets who wrote about those things. That makes sense. They were writing about things, but they were not seeing them in sharp focus. Someone recently said to me, the will of God is always discerned in retrospect. And that is certainly true for us looking back on fulfilled prophecy. We can look back at Calvary and say, this prophecy was fulfilled here, and we have that clear vision. But the prophets did not always see things that way, and Peter thinks this is important because he's writing to Christians who are exiled in the ancient Roman world who are marginalized. We are increasingly becoming marginalized today, aren't we, as Christians? We no longer hold the reins of power We don't have much influence in the government anymore. The great institutions of our land are falling into the hands of pagans and secularists and unbelievers. But this is not the first time that's happened. Christians in the first century, they had never known what it was like to have power or political influence. Now, as the centuries went on, Christianity had a huge influence in the Roman Empire, ultimately with emperors themselves converting. Some of you know about Constantine and things like that. But who Peter is writing to are Christians scattered throughout the empire with no power. They're outsiders. Do you feel like an outsider right now? Some of you are just super optimists and you just, nothing going on in the culture affects you. I want to be more like you, but, you know, 
I, I look around and I just feel like increasingly alienated from the world around me. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's good that our faith is causing us to put into focus our own identity in the world we live in and the contrast of who we are to the surrounding culture. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the fact that Christians are losing power, maybe the church is being purged of nominalism. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Nominalism is essentially Christian in name only. And we all know that that exists, doesn't it? There are people who say they're Christians, maybe they're not Christians, and our nation for a very long time, you had social status by saying you were a Christian in certain parts of our country. And that's changing. Now you have social status for saying you're not a Christian. I mean, just talk to someone under 30, and they'll tell you that's true. You have status in the culture if you smash on the church, if you attack the church. The church is, you know, fill in the adjective. The church is seen as evil. But Peter understands how important it is to tell the Christians in exile that they are part of something that has existed from eternity past in the mind and heart of God, and God's own prophets prophesied about it. They have received the fulfillment of something anticipated in the very heart and mind of God, the gospel. And Peter wants us to see that, number one, God's revelation is progressive. And this is important because that may sound like a theological statement, but it's important for us as we read the Old Testament and we see that the message of redemption comes into sharper focus as time goes on. Revelation is progressive. So there is a general idea about God going all the way back to the very beginning of the world, and it gets brought into sharper focus. All right, you go from Adam to Noah to Abraham, and then there's a family of Abraham and a people and tribes, a nation of Israel which are called out as distinct among all the world's nations. And the plan of redemption gets narrower until, that, until it narrows into a person, Jesus Christ himself. Again, it's a key insight for us. And the Old Testament prophets, they were prophesying things, but they didn't have, as I mentioned a moment ago, a sharp, the sharp detail. They didn't know when Jesus would come, who exactly he would be, the nature of his suffering, and exactly what his glorification would look like. And Peter says this in verse 10, concerning this salvation, which he's been talking about, the salvation that we all have, that we probably take for granted on a daily basis if you're a Christian and have been a Christian for some time. Now, if you've just converted, boy, you're super stoked about it. You're excited about it. You're zealous for it, about it. You're on fire for Jesus, hopefully, if you've just converted. But like many of us who've been Christians for a long time, maybe you grew up as a Christian. You want to be excited, but, you know, your faith has sort of cooled out. It's sort of a tepid lukewarm, maybe. A room temperature faith. 
And Peter says, concerning this salvation that maybe we take for granted, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. God was telling them things and they were trying to figure out the details. My mom is Jewish and she would talk about something called shul, which my grandfather and observant Jews, they would gather and they would pour over the Hebrew scriptures and they would talk and discuss about its meaning and its interpretation and the details. And that makes me think of the Old Testament prophets gathering. And as they wrote those things, they're trying to figure out what the future is looking like or is going to look like. It says, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that you now have. They searched, they inquired carefully, meticulously, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They were like people putting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together. I don't know, is anyone into jigsaw puzzles? I've been to people who, I'm not, it's too much work, but I've been to houses of people who are into them and they spread the 5,000 piece puzzle. You know, you 100 piece puzzlers, that you, that's lightweight. The five or 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and they stay on the dining room table for months because one person comes and visits and they look and they add a piece and someone else comes and they add a piece and everyone adds a little piece until over time, you have a complete picture. And that's what the prophets were doing. They were adding pieces to a jigsaw puzzle that we look back and see clearly. And Peter thinks that this is something astounding, amazing, something to be excited, something to stand in awe over, that we're looking at the completed jigsaw puzzle. Now, there are prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but the grace that has come to us in the gospel. This is what he's talking about. Here's the big idea, okay? This is the big idea from this passage that I want you to take away. I should have made a slide for it, but I didn't. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ are greater than anything that was envisaged by the Old Testament prophets or even by angels. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ are greater than anything that was envisaged by the Old Testament prophets or even by angels. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets that is, that they were serving not themselves, but you. What you have in the gospel, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, has come down to you over millennia through thousands of pious men and women who the Holy Spirit led in power, speaking to them, inspiring in their hearts prophecies written down in scripture, anticipated over generations they weren't serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The angels themselves were curious about this great salvation, this grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The angels were curious about how is the Father going to do it? Maybe in some corner of heaven, you know, they're talking with each other, you know. I don't know that that's what happens, but that's how my mind works by way of analogy. The angel's talking in some you know, back room in heaven. I don't know how he's going to do it. Maybe he'll do this. Maybe he'll do that. <clears throat> they longed to look and understand the blessings, the astounding blessings that we have as believers in Jesus, followers of Christ, Christians. Because what has been accomplished is an almost unfathomable mystery. Yes, the gospel's simple, absolutely. And at the same time, there is this cosmic incomprehensibility to what God has done in the gospel. And so the second thing I want to say is the gospel is a mystery manifested. The angels in eternity past wanted to understand it, but they couldn't until it came to pass. I mean, it was like our triune God was the best secret keeper ever. He gave hints. He gave prophecies, but he didn't give the whole picture until it happened. I don't know, but I'd like to think that God was whew, just excited about it. Thinking, whew, when this thing happens, baby, it's going to be so good. It's a mystery manifested and we could spend an eternity unpacking it. I'd like to think that, that when we come into the presence of God, when we're glorified, that part of what we'll spend eternity doing, last week I said something about exploring the universe and populating the far distant planets. That's just my own theory. But the other thing for certain to happen is understanding God's mind and heart and the things that God has done in the gospel. And I don't know that we fully grasp it, but we grasp enough of it to be able to know the truth. And this is why we read scripture. This is why we listen to sermons. This is why we rehearse the gospel in our songs and hymns. Because it's good news. It's a mystery, but it's good news. Isaiah 52 and 27, writing seven, eight centuries before Christ, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That is what the gospel is. It is the manifestation of the truth that our God reigns. Again, something we take for granted because we do not live in a world which is filled with temples to idols. But for people in the ancient world, this reality that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of Israel reigns, this little tiny nation. As an Israelite to read this passage, oh, because as you went into captivity and you walked into Babylon, and saw the temple of Etamananki and all these idols and all these huge statues. 
It was hard not to have a small God complex. We just assumed the Israelites were confidently, of course our God is the, the most powerful God. Of course he's the only God. But that is not necessarily the case. I can imagine the doubt in the hearts at times of Israelites thinking, well, if our God reigns, why do these guys have the power? Maybe you're thinking that right now in our culture, in our world. If our God reigns, what in the world is happening in our society? It's crazy out there. It's crazy. Every single day, I'm confronted with something that I just want to pull the tiny, I said my hair, the, the little, I, I want to pull my stubble out. But the good news of the gospel is that your God reigns. Not a generic concept of God, not some higher power our own personal deity, but the God of Scripture, the triune God of Scripture reigns. That God reigns. And the reason why this is so important for Peter to communicate is because he is trying to say, you're on the winning side. And I want to say to you this morning, you're on the winning side. As marginalized as Christians have been at different times in history, scattered across the world, powerless, they're actually on the winning side. And if we're not careful, we'll forget this truth. We forget it, don't we? I do. That's why, this is why we gather as the people of God every Lord's Day. Because what happens when we're gathered together, right? Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. Because we need to be reminded of the truth. We need to sing the gospel, hear the gospel, hear it preached, be reminded of the gospel, enact the gospel. We need it. And if we're not careful, what's happening around us will discourage us. And block out the glory of God. Not that the glory of God is somehow diminished by what's happening in our world, but sometimes we're blind to see it because we can't stop looking at the things in front of us. But we walk by faith and not by sight. Or at least we try. You're on the winning side. And no matter what the culture says, you're on the right side of history. Okay? Jesus is the right side of history because he's Lord of the universe. He's the sovereign Lord of history. You have to look at the promises of God with the eyes of faith. And you often have to keep the word in front of you. Because if you look at the world around you, your faith might falter. And sometimes it does. And you have to keep looking at the promises of God with the eyes of faith. Not the natural world around you. Not your circumstances. But what God has promised us and grab a hold of it. We have to grab a hold of those promises. We have hope. We don't fall into despair because Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. Now, I realize that's Christianese, has become Christianese, and we don't, it's a, this is another thing about the Bible. I just want to say this as a side note. 
Some of us are so familiar with the Bible, it makes us unfamiliar with the Bible. We've heard phrases like this, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We don't, most, a lot of people don't understand where it comes from. It is something that ancient kings said long before Jesus ever came along. So think of ancient empires, the kings of ancient empires, and on their epitaph read, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That was a title when you were, when you had subjugated empires and you dominated cultures. And so for Jesus, for the disciples to say Jesus was king of kings was truly a, a dangerous claim. History is littered with the ruins of kings who made that claim. And I think the poem Ozymandias eloquently puts this in perspective. Just by a show of hands, who's familiar with Ozymandias? It was written by Percy Shelley in 1817 when European archaeologists were just starting to explore Egypt. And it goes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The poem is beautifully ironic. All the pharaohs and great kings and emperors of the ancient Near East thought their empires would last forever. Their boast was in the buildings they built the institutions they established, and the kingdoms they conquered. He says, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. But great men look on Ozymandias, which is Ramses II, and despair. They look on Ozymandias and they despair, not because he's powerful, but because the same weathered fate will become of them. They will die, and their memory crushed by the wheels of history, just like Ozymandias. No one knows him today. Historians do, but no one else does. No one cares about him. He's just an obscure figure from history. He lived, he died, he was forgotten, and his mighty works are in ruins. But not Christ. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and now reigns forever. The resurrection puts Jesus in a category all by himself. And Peter finds this, the glorious truth of the gospel. Acts 2 records his sermon on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, who God raised up, there's the empty tomb. 
and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David himself, King David, did not ascend into the heavens. In other words, King David, the greatest of all the world's rulers, didn't overcome death. But he himself, David that is, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The pharaohs are all dead. Their sarcophagi raided by grave robbers. Their mummified remains lay in museums. The Caesars are all dead. We know them only as footnotes to history. And each one tried to say they were the Lord of Lords. Each one tried to say they were the King of Kings. They each tried to pass themselves off as eternal, as immortal, as gods. But they couldn't overcome death. And this is why the gospel is so important. This is why the resurrection matters so much as we pass through this world as pilgrims. And for Peter, this is the motivation for us to live intentionally as followers of Jesus. This last verse I give you as we close. Therefore... After everything that's been said, preparing your minds for action. This is anything but a mentality of retreat. Think about where you are right now in your life and the world and what's happening around you. Maybe you want to close yourself off in a bunker or buy some property out west. Not California, but I mean like Montana or something. where there's no one around you for, you know, miles and you can just live peacefully. But Peter sees us as engaged in a battle to defend the faith and he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We have the victory as God's people. And we live intentionally. Not as the losers of history, but as the winners. Because Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, the grace that has been given to us. This privilege we didn't deserve, but... You chose us in eternity past before the foundation of the world. We don't know why, but it was according to your good pleasure. You've called us, chosen us in Christ. And in Christ, you've given us a living hope. Help us to remember that hope and trust in Jesus every day and believe in him and live intentionally. In Christ's name we pray, amen.